Open up your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We began last week talking about this vital passage of Scripture and its issue of labor and discipline. How vital really both of them are to our life, to the Christian church, to our testimony. And, and particularly we spent time talking about how vital it is that we understand a biblical approach to work. We discuss how this was a major issue in the Thessalonian church. It was the underlying issue behind what Paul was addressing in this passage, dealing with people in the congregation who he says were idle or refusing to work, exploiting the kindness of others and actually causing disruptions in the fellowship. This underlying issue, uh, as we saw, was there that brought about the surface issue, which was how to deal with them. How do you respond to these people? And Paul, in that matter, could not have been more clear. He says in verse 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness, and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It's not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this commandment, if anyone is unwilling to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. But now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother." Two issues that really define this passage for us, the problem of idleness and how to deal with it. And Paul is addressing both of them along the way at some points with direct address to those who are idle and at some point as direct address to those who must deal with the idle. And as we said last week, this issue had been brewing for a long time. As Paul says even here in verse 10 Even when he was with them, months earlier when he was at Thessalonica with them, he was giving them this instruction. You remember in chapter 4 of the first letter of Thessalonians, Paul said that he had reminded them or he had told them to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you would walk properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. Some of these people, it would appear, were not following that kind of guidance that Paul gave them when he was with them. They weren't following the kind of guidance that he reminded them about in the letter. They weren't following the guidance that was given to them over and over and over again. And many people believe, I think it's probably right, that they had attached themselves in some way to a wealthy person in the city, a patron of sorts. And this, per, this patron or this person would give them money in, in exchange for kind of political support uh, for whatever cause there might be behind what they're trying to accomplish. That was, 
That was something that was done on a regular basis in these kinds of cities. It was perfectly legal. It was even admired in Greek culture that if you had a lot of means, you would try to establish yourself in the society and and in standing by promoting some cause and literally buying supporters with with the money that you had. These wealthy patrons would would uh, dole out the money and those who were patronized would then spend their time spreading the message and pleading the cause of the patrons. And perhaps that's what's going on here as Paul talks about these people not only not working, but becoming busybodies within the congregation. They were constantly disrupting the fellowship by, by wanting to chew up the time of other people, working people, by campaigning for whatever cause, whatever movement, whatever crusade they might have been uh, set to by their patron. And it was creating disruptions and divisions even within the congregation. Whether or not that's the exact details behind the, the background or not, The reality is that these people were consistently and steadfastly ignoring the clear teaching of God's word when it came to their calling to work and labor. And so Paul writes to the church to deal with it. This is a call to action, a series of commands. And it's based on, as I said, what had already happened in terms of a progression uh, began when Paul was with them and he was telling them, Already while he was with them at identifying the problem and telling them what they needed to do, it was, it was accompanied by his follow-up letter to them when he told them that they need to work this way. He even told the Thessalonians themselves in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that it was their responsibility as congregants to admonish the idol. So they heard it from Paul Oh, they, see, they saw it in Paul, they heard it from his letter, they no doubt heard it from faithful members in the congregation. And then when Paul sends Timothy back, I'm sure Timothy took up the admonition himself and gave them further warnings of their kind of behavior. But after all of that, after all of those attempts, they steadfastly refused to listen. They disregarded all of this clear instruction and they became disruptive to the unity of the body. And because of their flagrant unwillingness to comply with the word of God, they were creating rifts and divisions in the church. And Paul understood what was going to happen here. It wasn't necessarily an overnight process, but he understood that when you, when you tolerate that kind of behavior... When you tolerate that kind of activity within your church, it is a leavening influence. It's like leaven in a lump of dough. It, over time, slowly permeates the entire body. It will spread throughout. And so now's the time to take action. And, and throughout these verses, as we started to note last week, Paul gives a number of solutions, seven as we started to enumerate, seven solutions for slothful people that are given here, or seven solutions for the sluggard, or these slackers, that were ultimately intended to stir them up by way of repentance back to faithfulness in their work. A, a list or a series of, <clears throat> of either actions that they needed to take or reasons why they needed to take them 
to bring these people to repentance. Seven solutions for the sluggard. The first one we saw last week was the demand for separation. The demand for separation. We command you, he says in verse 6, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not according to the tradition you receive from us. This was essential. If this young congregation was to be uh, guarded, was, was to be secured in its purity, this was essential. It was essential for the health of the congregation. It was essential for the testimony of the gospel. You may remember, as I said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I quoted from that a minute ago. Paul even, even highlights the fact that these, these people who were idle were affecting their testimony with outsiders, with, with unbelievers. And so for the sake of all of these things, for the sake of the mission of the church and the purity of the church and faithfulness to the Lord, for the sake of all of those things, Paul calls for the radical step of disassociation, or we might say excommunication. I mean, this is essentially what Jesus taught himself when it came to the church, what I always, what I always like to refer to as the, the first great commission. Jesus gave the command in Matthew 28 to go into all the world and make disciples of all people. But before he gave that, he gave another command to the church in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18. That if you see your brother sinning, you go to him one-on-one and, and, and talk to him about his sin. If he listens, you've won your brother. If he doesn't listen, you take two or three others with you. If he doesn't listen to them, then you take it before the entire church. You call out the name of the sinner you put the pressure on them to repent. And if he, wasn't, if he won't listen to the church, you put him out of the church. This is very clear teaching from our Savior. As I said last week, when you do that kind of thing, certainly in the modern age, there is perhaps nothing you will ever do as a church that will make you less popular, more ridiculed, more criticized. But in fact, it's the unwillingness of churches to do this which spells their demise. It sends them down this pathway of ineffectiveness in their testimony because the world sees hypocrisy sometimes quicker than we do. The world sees sin, which is proverbially swept under the carpet of the church quicker than we do. And for a church to tolerate this kind of of absolute uh, obstinance towards the word of God, this kind of rebel behavior is for a church to completely undo its testimony. And so Paul calls for them to deal with it decisively. That's his first solution. His second one is in verses seven through nine. And it really is kind of a, it's kind of a, an explanation or a reason why this kind of action would be necessary. And it's really his display for imitation. He tells them, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. This isn't an issue of ignorance, he's saying. It's not an issue of of these people not being taught or not knowing or not even knowing what it looks like in application. You know, he says, how you ought to imitate us because we weren't idle when we were with you. Nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, he says, but to give you in ourselves an example 
to imitate. Paul is pointing them back to his example for imitation. You should have known better, he says. If, if not from the admonitions, if not from the letter, if not from all of those things, you should have known just by looking at us, just by emulating us. As we've said in the past, the, the, the problem of work was something that Paul had identified very early in his time together with them. He says that even while he was with them, those, those three months probably that he was with them, he talked to them about these things. And here, in these verses, he really divulges for us what was going through his mind. What was his motivation in what he was doing and in the way he was working in some craft outside of just preaching the gospel, but, but giving them an example of laboring with his own hands, what that looked like. Even back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you remember Paul drew attention to his own example of working night and day. This was a big point of emphasis for him, the example that he set for them, a big point of sacrifice for him. Back in that chapter, 1 Thessalonians 2.9, Paul explained, just as he does here, that part of his reason for toiling and laboring was, first of all, the fact that he didn't want to be a financial burden to them. Just as he says here, he doesn't want to burden, he didn't want to burden them in any way. That was part of the reason. He actually had concluded when he was with them that these people, most of them, were not in a position to help him financially. In fact, if you, if you study the Thessalonian church, you just do a little background study on these, this Thessalonian church, which was centered in Macedonia. It was the sort of the capital, uh, if you will, of Macedonia. Then you quickly learn, particularly from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, that if there's one thing we know about the Macedonians is they were extremely poor. In fact, in 2, Thessalonians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul refers to them using a word for beggars, not in a negative word, uh, not in a negative sense, but just talking about their, their state of destitution. They were at the point where they had trouble sometimes helping themselves. They were extremely poor. And so when he arrives in town and he begins preaching the gospel like he did everywhere, he he would have perhaps started by setting himself up as a tent maker and trying to evangelize and getting a church started and getting a church planted. And then in time, he would have left his work and, and there would have been enough believers to support him. He would have started receiving support from believers. But in this situation, he understood from the get-go that they were not able to do that. They were not able to do that. So even when they were returning to Christ and the church started to rise out of the ground, he recognized their financial situation, he recognized their poverty, and he concluded that to ask them for support at that point would have been an overburden on them. And so he worked. He worked, plus he received support from outside churches. Philippians 4.16 is very clear. Paul tells the Philippians Quote, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So in that three-month period, he's saying that while he was there, the Philippian church sent multiple offerings to the Apostle Paul 
to help him out financially while he was there. His trade, of course, was a tent maker, which was the kind of work that didn't allow you an abundance of free time to be studying and teaching and discipling people. So he obviously worked some, as he makes a point here, but at the same time, he was dependent on other churches like the Philippians so that he could maximize his time in the work of the ministry to the best of his ability, yet without becoming a burden to the Thessalonians. The bottom line is, whatever it took, Paul didn't want to put any kind of unnecessary obstacle, any kind of unnecessary stumbling block in the way to them hearing and knowing the truth. So when he says here in this verse, with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we shouldn't imagine that when he's talking about toiling night and day, he's talking about being a tent maker both in the evening and in the day. That's not the total scope of what he was doing. He was working with his own hands, but he was spending as much time as he could laboring in the work of discipleship and teaching and it was the gifts of the Philippians which allowed him to do that kind of thing. His work in both endeavors, however, kept him busy in morning and in the afternoon and in the evening. And in verse 9, Paul says that while he did this as an example and not to burden any of them, it wasn't because he didn't have a right to ask for pay. Paul, as we know, was a staunch defender of of the principle of compensation for missionaries and evangelists and pastor teachers and all of that. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 9, 14, he quotes the Lord Jesus. And he says, the Lord Jesus himself commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. The law had a sort of a fundamental obligation behind this, as he quotes from Moses even. In in 1 Corinthians 9, you shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the, the, the grain, And then Paul asks the question, it's not for oxen that God is concerned, is it? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written, he says, for our sake. In other words, the principle which was illustrated in the oxen is applicable to all laborers, all workers. And those who work in the ministry are not excluded. He repeats the same principle years later. In writing a letter to First Timothy, to Timothy, First Timothy five seventeen, let elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, meaning generous financial support, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, "You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is deserving of his wages." Again, quoting from Jesus Himself there. So Paul understood the moral obligation of a group of people who are receiving benefit from a minister to support the minister. But on occasion, because of the particular situation of a church, you, make, you may make the decision that, that you wouldn't want to put a stumbling block in the way of those people and you may forego compensation from them. Paul did that a couple of times. In fact, Not only at Thessalonica did he receive money from the Philippians, but he went to Corinth where he was writing from. He was writing this letter from Corinth. And he later on tells the Corinthians, you know what? I robbed other churches so that I could minister to you without pay. 2 Corinthians 11.8. 
So Paul often did this. He would go to a place and he wouldn't take support directly from them. He would take support from other churches. This is what establishes in our own day the principle of supporting missionaries. People who are not ministering in our church. They're ministering in other places around the world. And we send them money as a, as an, as a, a pattern, if you will, following the New Testament churches. Paul would... He was not opposed to taking financial support from churches, but if he felt like the church was not mature enough, if the church was not strong enough, if the church was not uh, well uh, uh, compensated or wealthy enough, for all those reasons, he would forego adding an unnecessary burden to them. But even while he was receiving financial support from the Philippians, even while he was doing that, He still conducted his life and his ministry in such a way that it should have been obvious to them the way that they ought to work in their jobs. Even as a minister of the gospel, he was engaged in studying and preaching and teaching in such an obvious fashion that they could honestly model their life after his. When they examined his life, What they wouldn't see would be idleness, slothfulness, squandering of time. What they would see would be productivity. What they would see would be diligence. What they would see is something that they could imitate and apply to their own situations. I mean, we all know that there are unfortunately far too many examples, even in pastoral leadership, of anything but hard work. The pastor so often has become a haven for unproductive people. I remember one time I was teaching a conference in Kenya and and touching on this subject. And right in the middle of my sermon, I mean, just as I was just in mid-sentence, a woman in the front row stands up. Mark, I think you might have been there. You remember this, right? This woman stands up, comes and stands in front of me and begins to passionately exhort the, the leaders who were listening to me. And she was speaking Swahili, I believe, and I didn't understand what she was saying, so I had to ask someone, well, what's she saying to them? And she was saying, basically, you need to listen to God's word in this. You need to listen to to what the preacher's teaching you. You know, she says, you tell us that you're at home praying, but we know you're in bed. We know that you're sleeping. How many times have you wanted to say that to a preacher, right? It's a universal problem. The pastorate has too often been a resort for those who are lazy and slothful. But you wouldn't have found that with the Apostle Paul. You wouldn't have found that with him. He understood the issue of labor and hard work applied even to ministers of the gospel. And he understood that if people are going to have an example to follow, let it begin with their pastors. Let it begin with their leadership. They ought to be characterized by a kind of hard work that every person in the congregation could look at and emulate. Could clearly see, oh, I see that if I applied in my life what's going on in their life, then I will experience blessings as well. So he says he toiled and he labored night and day, which... It's kind of a funny way to say that. We wouldn't normally say that, but that reflects Paul's Jewish 
understanding. The Jews understood a a 24-hour cycle to begin at night. It began with sundown. So they always would refer to uh, a day as night and day, whereas we might say day and night or sunrise to sunset or whatever it might be. So no matter how you describe it, you may not describe it as night and day. You might say, you know, I worked from sunup to sundown or I worked, you know, morning and afternoon and evening or whatever it might be. The implication is that he was not slothful. He wasn't lazy. He wasn't a slacker. Whatever the cultural trappings or understanding around it, whatever the profession is, he didn't fritter away his time in useless endeavors in idleness, but he exemplified a sound understanding of work and labor, which as we said last week is lost on so many people. They struggle with with how to understand what they do on a day-to-day basis. They struggle to find fulfillment in their job. They make uh, their job into an idol or they resent their work and think of it as something that's just sort of unspiritual. You find people sometimes even, because I think we, we may speak um, uncarefully sometimes about the things that take place in the business world versus the things that take place in the church. So people begin to get this idea, oh, whatever takes place in the business world is somehow tainted or ungodly or, or, or second best or whatever it might be. Really, that's not a biblical view. That's not a biblical view. We certainly have a different mission than what businesses might have. But in terms of work ethic and productivity and efficiency and wanting to do all things well and all of those other kinds of things, we do those things because God commanded us to do those things. We do those things because they're part of the design for what we are created to do. Work, in other words, is not pitted against worship and worship is not pitted against work. People struggle with that. They have a a sense that somehow there's some sort of divide between what they do on Monday and what they do on Sunday. I've had people tell me over and over again that they just wish that they didn't have to go to work so that they could serve God. You know, when I hear them say that, I I immediately understand that they don't really understand the issue of work they don't understand that God created work back in the garden he ordained it the Lord took man Genesis 2 15 says and put him in the garden of Eden in order to work it and keep it God created that that was before sin it wasn't the work is not the result of some some you know broken world it is the design of a perfect world In a perfect world without sin, God desires us to work. And while work later became cursed and while it became full of thorns and thistles and while we now have to eat by the sweat of our brow, even with that, we shouldn't associate the idea of work as a curse. Even in the garden, there was responsibility, there was mission, there was duty, it was holy, it was godly. It's one of the key purposes while, uh, why uh, Adam and Eve were created, so that they could imitate God in work. Do you realize God works? Jesus says in John 5, God is working with a present continuous tense. He's always working. 
God's always working. He's always got his hands, if you will, into something, doing something on behalf of other people, creative things, all kinds of things. God is constantly working. And we're to imitate him in that. Most of Jesus' life, you may remember, was as a carpenter. He probably spent two decades, long before he was a preacher for three, three and a half years or whatever, he was a worker, he was a laborer. And yet, never in his life could he have been accused of not serving God, not pleasing God, not worshiping God, or doing everything he can to God's glory. Never could he be accused of that. Everything he did was perfect and sinless. He never saw a conflict between those 20 years as a carpenter and and the life that he lived to please God versus the the, the time that he uh, preached the gospel because he understood the issue of work. Ephesians chapter 6, you may remember Paul was addressing this same issue in the lives of slaves. But really, the principle that he gives there applies to everyone, whether you're a worker or a manager or a housewife or a student or whatever. He says to them, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord, not to man. You hear over and over again, as you would to Christ, as you would to the Lord, as slaves of Christ. That's your worldview when it comes to your work. You have an earthly boss, you have an earthly authority that's over you, but you have an authority that's above that, and he demands more of you than your boss would. So if you're an accountant, and you audit the books and the records, you audit them because they belong to Christ ultimately. You're a steward of those kinds of things. If you drive a bulldozer, you grade out of sight, you do it as if it belonged to Christ. If you're a nurse and you treat patients, you treat those patients as if they belong to Christ. You're offering up your work, your labor, your task, your accomplishments each day as an offering, as a sacrifice, as an act of worship. You do it rendering, as Paul says, service to the Lord. And you do it all without eye service. That's really the the key. I mean, most of us are on our P's and Q's when someone's looking over our shoulder. But Paul says, well, when they're not even looking over your shoulder, That should have no bearing whatsoever. Whether or not you have an accountability report, whether or not you have a a sort of a service report or an annual review or or daily review, it doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter. You ought to be doing your work with so much excellence because you love Christ, because you want to honor Christ, because you want to glorify Christ. I was reading last week how... Perhaps this has become a bit more challenging in the modern age because we've become so mechanized and so computerized. In the old age, you know, before the industrial age, you could talk about this perhaps in a church and people better understood because they were much more likely to be putting their hands to some craft and carving out something or growing crops or something like that. But 
in the modern age, things have been reduced to so much repetitive and, and, and somewhat monotonous behavior, but it doesn't change. If you're typing out computer code or if you're, you know, uh, trying to put together strategy for your marketing campaign or whatever it might be, it doesn't matter. You do that in such an excellent way that Christ would be pleased with it. That it would be worthy of Him. You do it for that. You do it because you want to serve others in His name. You want to make life a blessing, a pleasing aroma to the people who are around you, those who use your computer program, your computer code. You want it to work flawlessly because you want to serve them. You want their life to be rich and full. And when you do that, you're serving Christ. You manage your people. You put together their, uh, their, their kind of uh, uh, strategy or you put together their performance reviews or you, or you put together the structure that, that guides them. You do all of that, not because you are trying to make an extra buck or squeeze an extra nickel out of them. You do it because you want to be a blessing to them in their labor and you want to glorify Christ. You want to have the best run division, the best run company, whatever it might be, because you want it to reflect on Christ. And all of that requires toil. It requires labor. Those things don't just happen. They don't just sort of, they don't just sort of emerge out of nothing. I once had somebody tell me, you know, I, I want to go into business for myself because I want to, you know, I, I want the life where uh, everyone's doing work for me. You, you small business owners are laughing because you know that's not the way it happens, right? The owner works harder than everyone else. But that's the illusion that people have. The illusion that they have is, you know, I'm going to find some pattern in life where I don't really have to work hard at all and I just make all kinds of money. That's not godly. That's not what you were created to do. Be productive in whatever you put your hands to do as an, an act of worship to the Lord. It doesn't really matter if you're even being paid for it. You might be a volunteer. You might be a volunteer at a conference. You might be a volunteer at a, a church event. You might be a volunteer at a community event. It doesn't matter if you're getting paid for it. Do it as unto the Lord. Do it in such a way that its precision and excellence and all those things reflect really on your Savior. What you do, you do for Him. You do it to bring honor to Him. So for the Thessalonians, Paul says, look, you had my example. You had my example. You know that I wasn't idle when I was with you. You know that I worked night and day and day and night or whatever it might be. Not, not only because I, I didn't want to put a burden on you in your poverty, but because I understood that you had a low view of work, or at least some of you. This is, honestly, this is not really a compliment to a church. It, for, the, for the pastor to come in and say, you know what, I, I didn't take money for you because you really kind of need an example of how it is to work. I mean, this is Paul sort of delicately saying to them, you need to step it up. Some of you, anyway, need to step it up. And so I set the example for you. We weren't just laying around looking for some wealthy patron to come throw cash our way. We got busy. And our life and our calling was geared towards being productive in 
what the Lord had given us to do. There's so many people here in the, in the Thessalonian congregation that if they could get by without being productive and still getting money from somewhere, being dependent on others, they were more than happy to do that. Paul had warned them. He had given them the stellar example and now they refused. After his example, after all of his admonitions, they refused. And so it's time for a stern response. It's time for a stern response. Which brings us to the third solution for these slackers and these sluggards. Not only separation, not only do they need to imitate the Apostle Paul, but thirdly, in verse 10, he deals with compensation, particularly the denial of compensation. Even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. I mean, when you read that, it strikes you, or I, think, I would imagine it strikes you as, on one hand, kind of harsh. I mean, we live in a world where, where society and, and certainly our government, it seems to be going out of the way to provide all of these sort of safety nets for just about anyone who is designated as homeless or hungry or whatever. And I completely understand that many of those things are there serving people who are working full time but not being paid very well. I understand that. And those things are good. And I appreciate those kinds of programs. But really, you don't have to work. There are things that are given out free left and right all over and people take advantage of it all the time. We know that. So Paul told them, look, uh, if you don't work, you don't eat. And the other part of that is like, why do you even need to say that, right? I mean, did you ever think about that? Someone would need to say, hey, you know, by the way, if you, you know, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. Or maybe if you don't work, you're not going to eat. That obviously wasn't uh, uh, that obviously wasn't clear to the Thessalonians, but Paul understood the principle. He'd given them the example, and he understood the principle. Compensation: if you don't work, you don't eat. You have to understand this, by the way, in light of what Paul had just said about himself not wanting to be a burden to the congregation. So in like fashion, if he's doing everything he can not to be a burden to the congregation, you can imagine that at the same time, he wouldn't want other people to be a burden, an unnecessary burden to the congregation, an encumbrance. Paul didn't want to see them putting these obstacles not only to the mission of the church but to the fellowship of the church and so he taught them this principle if you don't work you don't eat really in saying that Paul was just expounding the wisdom of scripture which particularly in the book of Proverbs gives warning after warning after warning to the sluggard Proverbs 19:15, slothfulness cast into a deep sleep and an idle person will suffer hunger. If you don't work, you don't eat. If you don't work, you're going to go hungry. That's the basic principle. 
Proverbs 21, 25. The desire of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse to labor. It's going to be the death of you. It's going to bring all kinds of pain and and affliction into your life. It's going to bring hardship. But Paul understood these things. He understood the dangers, not only for them, but for the church. Proverbs 10, 26, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. So these people don't only have an impact on their own life, but they impact the people that they're working for, the people who are around them. Proverbs eighteen nine: whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. This can absolutely destroy a, an organization. It can destroy a company. It can destroy a church. The reason the writer of Proverbs say these things It's because they understand what a drain these kinds of people are on everyone who's around them. Paul understood that. He understood that this kind of laziness, this kind of slothfulness, really, it wasn't a reflection of the fact that these people didn't want things. He knew that these idle people still expected food. They still expected clothing. They still expected a house. They just didn't want to work for it. Proverbs 13.4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Proverbs 20, the sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest but have nothing. So this is his worldview. You know, I'm not going to really do anything. I'm not going to get an early start on this project. I'm not going to kind of put in the time. I'm just going to show up at the harvest. I'm going, to, I'm going to desire to have the same harvest that everyone else has. But he ends up with nothing. He craves and he gets nothing. It's not that he doesn't care if he doesn't eat. It's not that he doesn't care that he doesn't get things. He still craves. Bruce Waltke says, The lazy are generally not those who have few desires. Rather, Their daydreaming leads to exaggerated desires. Exaggerated desires to a despair of of realization. You know, one of the things about slothful and unproductive people is they actually are spending a lot of their time just daydreaming. Proverbs talks about them scheming. They spend their time kind of frittering away their their hours and their days on something that isn't leading to anything but something that they wished and coveted and thought about and wished that they had or they make excuses proverbs 22:13 the sluggard says there's a lion outside i will be killed in the streets so so it could be something completely irrational you tell them you know what you got this project oh i can't do that I mean, if I do that, then this is going to happen over here. I mean, they just make excuse after excuse after excuse. Nothing ever really gets started. Nothing ever gets completed. They never really face any kind of difficulty head on. They're just always, always making excuses. Derek Kidner says, the slugger doesn't commit himself to a refusal, but he deceives himself by the smallness of his surrender so that By inches and minutes, his opportunities slip away. A little folding of the hands, a little 
closing of the eyes, the proverb says. And so your poverty will come upon you like a vagabond. Just little things. The little distractions, the little luxuries that you crave, the little compromises that you make. All of those things are ungodly. None of those things are what the Lord has called you to. None of those things please him. And none of those things are what Paul exemplified. He understood all the dangers. He understood all these principles. He knew that God did not design a world where some people worked and some people didn't. He knew that God didn't design a world where some people bore the burdens and and other people got to enjoy their benefits. That's not God's design. We're not saying that the generous that the wealthy shouldn't be generous. We're not saying that if God has particularly blessed you with abundance, that you don't have an obligation. In fact, you do. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, warn those who are wealthy in this world to be generous with good deeds. This is not what he's talking about. What he's talking about are people who refuse to work. And so he taught him this principle. If someone refuses to work, let him not Eat. The last thing you want to do is perpetuate that kind of ungodly lifestyle. The last thing you want to do is to increase the likelihood that that person becomes a burden to someone else. And so this is his wisdom. This is his wisdom. He's telling them, if you have someone who's unwilling to work, if you have someone who's refusing to listen, you don't want to magnify that problem. You don't want to exalt that lifestyle. You don't want to prop it up. You can't just feed people after multiple attempts of giving them opportunity and multiple attempts of giving them teaching and, and, and then they just refuse their task or they refuse to hold down a job Eventually, the godly thing is to cut them off. The Christ-like thing is to cut them off. Maybe that's what it takes for them to learn. Well, there are other solutions for the sluggard, Paul adds to the mix, including verses 11 and 12, the need to understand the danger of their idleness, the danger of the agitation that it will bring. But we'll get to that next time. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, these are good reminders for us. We who live in a world with so many conveniences and so many luxuries because of your goodness and your common grace in our life, we have been spared in a lot of ways the real sweat of our brow and yet we have tasks to do. Things which need to be done as unto you. We need to do them, Lord. Let us then as a people glorify you in our labor. Let us glorify you in our work. May we be able to say To others, as Paul said to them, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Do what I do as well as what I say. 
And give us the kind of understanding of our task each day that could bring you honor and glory. That we could offer up to you as a pleasing sacrifice. Whatever we are producing, whatever we are mending, whatever we are planning, whatever it is, Lord, may it be excellent for the sake of your name. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.